The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right. Well, tonight, uh, I'm not going to um, try to deliver a message to to necessarily cause us to make changes in our life or, or anything such as that. Tonight I'm going to preach in the garden, and this is going to be basically some observations from the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but I do love gardens, and uh, I'm not a gardener by any means. This, this coming spring my son wants to plant a garden, and uh, I'm not sure how that's going to go out, but we're going to try it. But have you ever heard the saying... Uh, that so-and-so has a green thumb. How many of you have ever heard that? Well, I don't have a green thumb. I have a black thumb. Uh, any, any, any living plant I touch will die within days. And, and, uh, I, my wife wanted some greenery in the house once, so I went to, I went to one of the local stores and I said, you know, uh, my wife wants a plant in the house, but I'm not good at growing things and I'll forget to water this thing. And, and he gave me a, he sold me a tree and he's a little tree and he said, this thing can survive in the middle of the desert. It doesn't need sunlight. It doesn't need water. It doesn't need anything. I brought it home, put it in the house and it was dead in a week. And so, uh, I'm not, I'm not exactly what you call a gardener. Uh, my wife wanted to plant some flowers one time. We lived over on windmill farms. We went to, uh, I think it was Walmart we went to, bought $75 worth of flowers. And went home and, and cleaned up all of this area and planted all these flowers. I got up one morning, walked outside, and all the flowers were gone. All that was left were sticks sticking up out of the ground. And the flowers were gone. And I, I didn't know. I, I said, someone came here and cut all of my flowers. See, no one told me slugs eat flowers. I didn't know that. And the slugs, ate, they had a feast. They had a smorgasbord of $75 worth of flowers. And um, so I'm not a gardener by any means, but I do like gardens. I love gardens. When I was a child, I would help my father work in the vegetable garden in our backyard. And he would grow okras and bell peppers, and he would grow green beans and tomatoes. And my wife's father, he loves to he, he loves to garden. He has a, a half-acre garden, and he loves it in there, and, and he does a great job. But that's not what I want to preach about this evening when I talk about in the garden. I'm not talking about a garden in the sense of planting and growing. I want to take just a few moments tonight and spend a little time in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, our Savior. And I'd like to, if you'll allow me the liberty tonight, to make some observations from this time in history as we see it recorded in the Word of God. So much took place in the few hours our Lord tarried in this garden. It would take many, many messages to fully expound upon every verse and every moment that transpired. However, this evening, I'd like to share with you the things that, that jump out at me from, from this passage of, 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 that we see in this scripture. So let's open our Bibles together to Mark chapter 14. And it's a very lengthy amount of scripture, so I'm not going to read them all at one time. We'll look at them as we go through tonight. But look with me at Mark chapter 14, and, and, and we'll begin in verse number 32. And the first thing I'd like for us to see tonight is I'd like for us to see 
the insight of the Lord. The insight of the Lord. Now, I, you forgive me, I don't have a PowerPoint. Uh, my laptop went out on me, and, and with my challenging work schedule, I, I haven't had the time to, to, to get in here in the office and put together a PowerPoint. So you bear with me, and I'll try to give you these points as clearly as I can. First, I want us to see the insight of the Lord. Look with me at Mark chapter 32 uh, of verse 14. And they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, sit here, sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. Now, Jesus knew his disciples. He knew them, he knew them very well. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses. And he knew that all of his disciples would not be able to bear up under the burden of seeing their Lord in such sorrow and distress. Seeing him in the mental anguish that he was under due to the physical suffering that he, he knew he must endure. The cruel and physical horror of crucifixion. You see... We, we see that while all disciples went with him, save one, of course, Judas Iscariot, to the garden, that he only took Peter and James and John with him into the garden. The others, he told them to tarry and stay there. Um, remember, while Jesus was completely God, he did take upon himself the form of flesh. Not its nature, but certainly its psychological characteristics. From Scripture, we see that Jesus hungered. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2, we read, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. So we see that Jesus' body uh, uh, had to deal with physical needs such as food. He grew tired. In John chapter 4 and verse 6, we read, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour. So we know that Jesus became physically tired. Uh, he thirsted. In John chapter 4 and verse 7, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Uh, we know from Scripture that the Lord felt sorrow. In John chapter 11 and verse 33, we read, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, uh, which came with her, he groaned in his spirit, and was troubled. He wept. In John 11.35, we read, Jesus wept. So, given the fact that Jesus had all of these physiological and psychological uh, tendencies in his human form, it's reasonable to assume that Jesus in his flesh was anguished over the great suffering that awaited him, and that he, he did not want to subject all of his disciples to see him in such agony. I think that's why he didn't bring all 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 eleven into the garden with him. He he knew which ones uh, needed to be there, and he knew which ones it would be better for them not to be there in that moment in time to see him in 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 this anguish and in this despair. He he knows these things, and Jesus, may I say, knows you tonight also. Jesus knows you. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. 
He knows what you can and cannot endure, what you can and cannot handle. In John chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Now, of course, we, we understand that he's, he's just talking here about knowing the elect by name, but certainly we can all tonight agree that Jesus knows us. He knows us intimately. He knows us completely. He knows what you can and cannot handle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 13, we read, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Jesus knows you. He knows what you can and cannot handle. Uh, We've discussed this many times. And just as God was concerned for his disciples in the garden, he is also concerned for you and he's concerned for me tonight. You see, the things that God allows in my life are there to help me. They're there to teach me. They're they're there to strengthen me. They may not seem that way to us at the moment that we're facing them. But God allows the things to happen to us that that will make us stronger and that will strengthen us and that will glorify him they're never there to destroy us in zechariah chapter 13 and verse 9 we read read, and i will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried they shall call on my name and i will hear them i will say it is my people and they shall say the lord is my god these trials, these things that we, we go through in our life, they're designed to remove the dross from our lives. They're designed to purify us. They're designed to mold us into the image of his son. Consider Job for a moment. Now the Bible tells us that Job was a, was a, was a righteous man. He eschewed evil and, and he honored the Lord. And, and the Lord allowed him to to go through all that he did to gain glory for himself. But yet, if we study the book of Job carefully, we do see and we do learn that there were some things Job needed to learn. And that while, yes, Job was a, was a, was a righteous man, and while Job was a good man and, and, and had good character and all those other things, uh, there were some things that God needed to teach him. And Job learned those things as he endured what he endured for the Lord. And we can rest tonight in the truth that God loves us and that he knows us and that he is caring for us. It's so easy. It's so easy in times of despair. It's so easy. And we are so tempted in those difficult times to doubt God. We're so tempted to to become embittered and angry over over things that we face. But you see, Jesus cares about us, and we need to understand that. And I see that in this story in the garden. I see that the Lord had great discernment when he came to his to his disciples, and he knew which ones needed to be in the garden with him and which ones did not. And the Lord compassionately and kindly made sure that that he took care of his children the way they ought to be cared for. So first tonight, we see the discernment of the Lord. We see the insight of the Lord. But then secondly, from the story, 
I want us to also see the sorrow of the Lord. The sorrow of the Lord. Look at verse number 33 again in Mark chapter 14. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, we read, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus lived a very heavy life. His life, though he, though he certainly, I'm sure, uh, loved to, to, to serve his father and while I'm sure he, he loved uh, to do all the things he did, I, I, I'm also sure that Jesus lived with a lot of grief and a lot of sorrow in his human self. Uh, we have this idea that life is supposed to be all pleasure. Life is supposed to be all fun, but yet when we look at when we look at our Lord, when we look at our Savior, what piercing words were used by Isaiah to describe his life? He was despised. He was rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised, and and the same is true today, is it not? Our government. Our schools, our society, all despise Jesus. Oh, but they're tolerant of, of Allah, they're tolerant of Buddha, they're tolerant of Muhammad. In fact, they were willing to tolerate an Islamic mosque being built on the site of the greatest slaughter of innocent lives by Islamic extremists in modern history. They were prepared to allow a Islamic mosque to be built on the, on the site of the, of the Twin Towers in New York City. We're so tolerant of, of, of evil. We're so tolerant of, 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 of sin. We're so tolerant of false teachers and false prophets. The governments, our schools, society is tolerant of the manifesto of the secular humanists. I think I think all of you parents with children in school ought to go home and get on your computer and Google Secular Humanist Manifesto. Because remember, the secular humanists are the ones that control our government schools. Go home and Google the Secular Humanist Manifesto and see what their agenda is. If you've never done that, I I guarantee you it'll shock you. These are the people that are framing the minds of our young people in this in this nation tonight. And we're so tolerant of that. Matter of fact, we, we applaud that in our nation. We support it with our tax dollars. And all the while, Jesus is despised. But also notice that Isaiah stated that he was he, Jesus, was rejected of men. All across this globe today, men reject Jesus. They reject his deity. The fact that he was God in the flesh. They say, oh, he was a good prophet. He was a, 
he was a good man, but they, they, they reject Jesus' deity. They reject his doctrine. His doctrines of election and sovereignty and grace. His, his, all of his doctrines of sanctification and all these different doctrines that we hold so dear. They reject them. They reject his death. And we can see the end result of, of this rejection in our word today of Jesus. Abortion. 1.4 million per year. 3,700 per day. By the time I finish this message tonight, 2,400 babies will be murdered around this globe. 2,400 children murdered in their mother's womb. Divorce. In the, in the, in the 1900s, 7.8% of marriages ended in divorce. By the 1960s, it was 25% of marriages ended in divorce. And in 1998, 50% of marriages ended in divorce. These things are the result of the rejection of Jesus by our society. Pornography now exists on our television screens and on the Internet. Rape in the year 2006 There were 212,690 reported rapes in America, 581 per day. Child abuse. In the year 2006, the report said that 1.25 million, or one out of every 50 children, were abused physically and or sexually. One out of every 50. How many students are at? Rancho Catania. Anybody venture a guess? Maybe 300? 350? Imagine that. One out of every 50 of those children have been abused. Murder. 15,241 murders in 2009. Five in in every 100,000 people will be murdered. Homosexuality has gone from an abomination to an alternate lifestyle that has been written into the textbooks of our public school systems and is now taught to children as an alternate choice. It's just a choice, just a lifestyle. And the spread of all of this is the result, is the direct result of man rejecting Christ. And all of this brings sorrow to the heart of the Savior. I can only imagine what our society would be like if men did not despise Jesus but revered him. Can you imagine what a utopia we'd have if we did not reject him but we would embrace him in every aspect of our lives? So in the garden we see, first we we see the discernment of Jesus and the compassion and the concern he had for his disciples. Even in this even in this difficult moment in his life, when he was facing his own, his own death, his own mortality as, as a human, he cared about his, his children, his people. We see the sorrow that he, that he lived with every day of his life, the sorrow that he, he, he carried about with him. But then there's another thing I want us to see about our Savior in this story, and that is I want us to see number three, the sovereignty of God's will. 
the sovereignty of God's will. Look at verse number 35 with me, please. We, we read here, let's back up verse 35. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Do you see there this Jesus' submission to the sovereign will of the Father? Jesus said, but not, not what I want, Lord, but what you want. That's what's important. Now, some argue here that Jesus was asking that if it be possible, the cross be taken from him. Others argue that Jesus is praying that he not suffer an untimely death at his arrest in the garden so that he could fulfill his purpose of the cross. I'm not here tonight to to offer my opinion as to what is the correct analogy. However, what I do know is that Jesus knew that God's will was the perfect will for him, whatever it may be. He knew that God's will is sovereign. Often over the, over the years, I, I've observed Christians who put their own will ahead of the Father's. In fact, they will push their wills to the forefront. Despite the fact that God has done all but come down and say in the most pronounced voice, no. They just, they don't care. They don't care what the Word of God says. They, they don't care about biblical principles. They don't care about the collective counsel of, of the leadership in the church. They, they just make it happen anyway. They don't care about, about God's will, His sovereign will. It is so important. I just, I lack the eloquence to be able to state to all of us in this room collectively how important it is that God's will be done, whatever it may be. I've I've observed people over the years that have manipulated situations in their life to produce opportunities for their children to do what they want them to do and have no regard for what God wants them to do. Now, I'm not talking about a parent who's genuinely concerned for their child and tries to give them every opportunity. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I've known some people who clearly know what what they need to be doing in their life, but they refuse to do it because it's not what they want to do. They They will push their will ahead of the Father's. Now, think about it for a moment. We've already discussed the humanity of Jesus. He hungered, he thirsted, he sorrowed. I'm sure he, I'm sure he, he endured illnesses. I'm sure he, 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 he was cold when it was cold and he was hot when it was hot and all these things. And Jesus having perfect knowledge, don't, don't you think for a moment Jesus understood the physical horror he was about to go through? Don't you think Jesus more clearly than you or I ever could understood the the degree and the and the magnitude of suffering and pain 
that he was going to endure. But yet he was willing to do that for the Father. You say, yeah, but he was God. Yeah, but he was man too. And he obeyed the Father's will just as he expects us to obey the Father's will. And Jesus knew that God's will was best for him. I've heard news of families that left this church over the years for the wrong reasons. They placed their own desires or or their own agendas ahead of God's will and, and, and God's work in this place, and they left. And now years later, they've, they've paid the terrible price of ignoring God's sovereignty and doing their own thing. I've heard some really sad stories come back from, from some of those situations. I could stand here for hours and tell you about family after family, but I'm sure you understand my point right here. Even when we do not want to obey, even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us, God's will is always the perfect will for our lives. Remember the admonition of Paul in Romans chapter 12 where he states, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. From this moment in Jesus' life, I learned that it is not what I want, but what God's want, God wants that is best. Does anyone want to suffer the agony of a crucifixion? Of course not. However, Jesus knew and understood the end of the path. He saw the end result of his sacrifice. His heart and mind was focused on God the Father and his will. He was not thinking of his own well-being. He was not thinking of his own desires. He was fully given to the sovereign will of God the Father. So we see the we see the insight of Jesus, the discernment of Jesus for the care of his people. We see the sorrow that the Lord faced, and we see the sovereignty of God's will. But then as we continue to follow Jesus in the garden, there's a couple of more things I want you to see that 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 have to do with his with his disciples, with people like you and me. Next number 4, I want you to see the apathy of the disciples. The apathy of Peter, James, and John. Look at Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14. Look at verse 37. We read here, and he cometh and findeth them sleeping. Now, now here they are. Jesus is about to, to be arrested and taken and crucified. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. He cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, 
neither wist they what to answer him. Now, now don't miss this. Just a few hours earlier at the supper, Jesus announced to all of them that this very night he would be betrayed and arrested and they would uh, all be offended because of him and would forsake him. In verse Matthew 14, 27, we read, And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. He said, he said, Peter, what are you doing? Don't you realize that in just a little while, Peter, you're going to be tempted, you're going to be tried, you're going to be tested by, by Satan to forsake me? You better, you better wake up, buddy, and you better, you better get on your knees, and you better start praying, and you better start seeking the, the, the help of your father. And here they are, with Jesus in the garden. They see his sorrow. They see his grief. They see his heaviness. But they just don't seem to very, be very concerned about it. They don't seem to sense the gravity of the moment. And tonight, I'm afraid the same is true of many Christians around this world. We just don't seem to sense the gravity of what is happening around us. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. In other words, Solomon is saying, if you're going to do anything for the Lord, you better get busy doing it right now. All we have is now. Jesus didn't promise you tomorrow. He didn't promise me tomorrow. If I'm going to glorify God, I need to do it right now. I need I need to live my life to God's glory now. I, I need to to use the resources that God has given me to serve him and to, and, and to do his work now. And this is the urgency. For years I tried to teach our teenagers in, in, in our school and things that, that if they're going to live for God, they need to do it right now. Don't, don't fall into that trap of the devil and to saying, well, you got lots of time left to do things for God. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Well, for what is your life, James said, is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, then vanisheth away. All we have is now. If we are going to live for Christ, it must be now. Wake up this evening and get busy for God. We just don't seem to be concerned with the the fact that every day Jesus is despised and rejected. In our world, we know that it's true, but we just don't seem to really care. We just don't seem to care that every moment of every day we waste opportunities to to serve the Lord. We we waste opportunities to be a witness for Christ at our at our workplace, at school, wherever we may be. We 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 waste opportunities for admonishing and instructing our children in the principles of God's word, for setting an example for them. We, we waste opportunities for, for being in church on Sunday. I'm not going to park there. I could, but I'm not. But we ought to be in church on Sunday, amen? Sunday morning, Sunday school. How about Sunday school? 
How about, how about, how about Wednesday night? I've had a lot of people tell me, well, I don't go to Wednesday night because I don't care for, to watch videos. Do you love the Lord? That's the question. Do you love the Lord? Then honor Him. Support your church and what we do. Come and, and be a part of what's happening. How do you know that the Lord won't use that video to touch your heart? How do you know that He won't, He won't use something that's said or, or something that's shown there to, to open your eyes and make you, make you a better believer and a better Christian? We waste these opportunities. We know Jesus is despised. We know He's rejected and we're a part of it sometimes. We're a part of that. Be in church, reading, studying, and meditating upon God's word every day. Praying, serving in the local church. These are all such important things. And we know that Jesus is rejected, but we waste the opportunities to do these things. But just like Peter, James, and John, we just curl up in the corner and go to sleep. Oblivious of all the suffering and all the need around us, content in our own little worlds. And notice in the scriptures that Jesus came to them twice to wake them up. Not just once, twice. He tried to impress upon them the seriousness of the moment. But notice in verse number 40, it says, And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. That word wist means understood or knew. They, they didn't even know what to say to Jesus when he woke them up the second time. They just looked at him. And they, they didn't know what to say. They were speechless. And one day soon, we will all stand before the Lord to account for our lives. And we, too, will be speechless. We won't know what to say to the Lord. Because we won't have an answer for him. When he looks at us and says, Why? I gave you every opportunity. I gave you every resource. I gave you everything you needed. Why didn't you give more to me? Why didn't you serve me? Why? Listen, don't become apathetic like the disciples were. Watch and pray. Jesus told them, watch ye and pray. Watch and pray, as Jesus stated, that you will be able to resist the devil in your day of testing. So first we see the the discernment of Jesus. We see the sorrow of Jesus, the sovereignty of God's will. We see the apathy of the apostles. But then lastly tonight, we see the abandonment of the disciples. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 50, look what it says. And they all forsook him and fled. Have you ever been abandoned? I mean, have you ever been really depending on someone? Have you ever been counting on someone and they just, they abandoned you? They just didn't, didn't come through? It's a horrible feeling. I'm compelled to ask what would cause one to abandon another? And I do have some ideas of some things that cause us to abandon and, and that will cause you and I also to abandon the Lord. What are they? First, on your, on your answer sheets, fear. Now, I'm, I'm not going to stand here and say that I, I would not have been afraid 
through such an ordeal as these disciples went through. I couldn't stand here tonight and say, I wouldn't forsake. Peter did that. Peter said, though all men be offended, I will never forsake thee. And we know what happened to him. These men knew the cost of, of being convicted of heresy. They knew the terrible price that would be paid. But this aside, these men allowed their fears to take control. They forgot with whom they were standing. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, we, we hear the words of the Lord spoken to Joshua where he says, Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Listen, even if these men were to die that night, they were commanded as we are to be strong and of a good courage. And just like they, we too often fail in our faithfulness to God because of fear. Fear of failure or fear of persecution, fear of abandonment. Do not allow fear to dictate your service and faithfulness to God. But there was something else that caused them to abandon, and that is the second thing, is doubt. I mean, in their minds, they must have said, is this really the Messiah? Can it be that the Messiah will suffer defeat at the hands of the Romans? Wasn't he supposed to restore the kingdom to Israel? Doubt will begin to creep into our minds once fear takes up residency. We will begin to question those things that we once believed. And remember this, there is only one cure for doubt. In Mark chapter 9, we read, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou. Mine unbelief. Jesus is the only one who can defeat doubt. And here are the disciples running from their source of confidence, their source of assurance. As we do today, we forsake the things that can help us and will cause us to have confidence in our faith. But then there's a third reason why they abandon, and that is, I believe, the reason of insincerity. By this, I'm, I'm referring to a lack of commitment. A lack of commitment. This is, this is at the core of every divorce. It's at the core of every abortion. It's at the core of every broken relationship. Com- it, what, it, what is commitment? Commitment is fixity of purpose. It's, it's, it's fixing your purpose and getting the job done. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, any coward can quit. It takes a person of true character to remain fixed in your course, to remain faithful to your purpose. Fear leads to doubt. Doubt will rob you of your purpose. And all of this leads you to the last point, and that is selfishness. And this is where we see the disciples. They have forsaken the Lord and have turned all of their attention to the preservation of themselves. And nothing will lead you into misery faster than selfishness. Selfishness will always cause you to be unhappy. If you're a selfish person, your attitude will be, No one ever treats me as I deserve to be treated. Nothing will ever be able to meet your expectations. No job will ever bring you complete satisfaction because in your mind you deserve better. 
Your spouse will never be sensitive enough or satisfying enough for you. Your children will never be submissive enough to you because you think that you deserve more. Selfishness causes us to believe that we deserve more, that we we demand what we deserve. Well, tonight, if we got what we deserve, where would we all be? Just think about that for a moment. If God gave us what we deserve, we we would all be in hell. But that's what God that's what God's mercy is. His mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. His grace is giving us what we do not deserve, and his mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. But selfishness will cause you to abandon Christ because you deserve more. You deserve better. You shouldn't have to put up with such things as this. And there's only one solution to to selfishness, and that is to live for others. Paul states in Philippians chapter 2, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is exactly what Jesus did in the garden. Do you realize that? He, he didn't worry about what was best for him. He thought about the perfection and sovereignty of God's will. He thought about what was best for you and for me. He thought about the weakness of his disciples. And he was concerned about their well-being. And praise be God, he did not abandon us as his disciples. Abandon him. He stood in the, he stood in Pilate's hall alone. Only Peter had followed from afar just to see what would happen. But alas, even he forsook Jesus at that time. He stood as a lamb before the slaughter and said not a word in his defense. He suffered. He bled. He died, and he rose again, all according to the Father's will. And he did this for our redemption, to secure for you and I, the elect saints of God, our salvation. Praise be the name of God. Are you asleep tonight? Are you? I mean, you know Jesus is rejected in this world. You know he's despised. But are are you one of those who Jesus will come and he'll find you sleeping? And he'll say, wake up. Wake up and pray and watch. Be ready. For in such an hour as this, you face temptations and you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. You You need to be doing all that you can to wake up. And you say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm awake, I'm awake, I'm awake. But then he comes back a, an hour or so later, and there you are again, back to sleep. It's time to wake up. It's time that we realize just who Jesus is 
Awake out of sleep. Serve the Lord. While we have time. While it is day, for the night cometh, Jesus said, when no man can work. There's a night coming. pastor preached about it this morning. Judgment is coming to America. It's, it's coming. And, and, and it's going to come when the Lord's ready. But the question is, are you ready? Are you doing, are you living for God now? Are, are you like the, like the disciples abandoning Christ, fleeing into the night? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And Lord, all of us as, as your children, we're weak. We, we like to think we're strong. We like to think that we're invulnerable. And we don't, we don't like to be told that we're asleep. We don't like to be told that we don't have the, the confidence that we need and we, we don't have the commitment that we need. We don't like to be told those things. But Father, that's exactly where we are. And that's why our nation is where it is. Because your people have been asleep all these many years. So wake us tonight. Help us to to leave this place and to to live for you and to serve you. And we'll praise you and we'll thank you for this because you are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. Bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.